Well, this Christmas season, uh, we have been looking in John chapter 1 at verse 14 that mentions um, how Jesus Christ, the, the Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we've been focusing this Christmas season on what does it mean to behold Christ's glory. And we've looked at that theme in particular, but also um, what does the scriptures mean by referring to Jesus as the Word of God? What do the scriptures mean by referring to Jesus as light and life? And this morning, uh, we're going to be taking a look at what scriptures refer to when they describe Jesus as being full of grace and truth. So I'll read from John chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, when we, we speak of Jesus being full of grace, uh, when we think of what this means in Scripture, we see that, first of all, that we behold Christ's glory as God's perfect Redeemer. In verse 14, we read how Jesus is full of grace and truth. Verse 16 states that from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And verse 17 states that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, grace is a, a word that appears frequently in the New Testament. It's interesting that the only time that the gospel is recorded by John references grace are in these three verses in chapter 1. You can read the rest of the book that is full of, of God's grace, but does not mention the word grace again. So, there are two aspects to what the New Testament refers to when we speak about grace. And the first is that God's grace is his unmerited, undeserved favor towards sinners. There was a Bible teacher for many years ago, his name was Harry Ironside. He wrote that grace is the very opposite of merit. Grace is not only undeserved favor, but it is favor shown to those who deserved the very opposite. For instance, you might think in uh, the book of Romans, it defines love, that in this is love, that while we were Christ's enemies, that while we were God, still enemies, Christ died for us. In other words, God is gracious towards us, on, not on the basis of what we have done, if God treated everybody according to what they deserved, we would all be in terrible shape. That's why the writer of Psalm 103, and praising and blessing God, says, um, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who does not treat us as our sins deserve. No, when God is gracious towards us, it's not on the basis of what we have done, but solely on the basis of his character, where he 
um, takes the merit and the good work of Jesus Christ and credits it to us, and where he also takes the sin that we deserved and places it upon his son who bears the punishment for it, so that there is this wonderful exchange that takes place where our unrighteousness Christ bears and we receive, God credits to us the righteousness of Christ. So he sees us through that righteousness and not our sinfulness. That is why in verses 12 and 13 in John chapter 1, we read that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of the will of man, but of God. So you see the extent of God's grace even further because of the way in which this grace is received. We would think in our typical human interactions and transactions with people that if we we're going to receive something so extraordinary, that we would have to pay a lot of money for it, or we would have to do a lot of work in order to earn it. But that's not God's grace. God's grace is given freely. That's why we read in John chapter 1 that of the fullness we have received grace upon grace from Jesus Christ. Because it's not something we earn. It's not something that we can purchase. We receive this awesome salvation from the grace of God by believing in Jesus Christ and what he has done. In 1 Timothy, Paul says it like this. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed. Uh, the, The original word there means superabounded. So we could read it as, the grace of our Lord superabounded for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do you see the connection there? In verse 13, Paul is talking about how sin abounded in him previously. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent opponent of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Well, what changed? God's grace superabounded to Paul so that he then fled his sin. He received the grace of God in Christ Jesus, and then he became an extraordinary uh, apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Connie and I, my wife, uh, attended a school in northwestern Pennsylvania. It was a state college. It was known as a party school. And the I think all state schools are known as party schools. But at our particular school, there were two local businessmen who were exceptionally burdened for the campus. And so they went around to other businessmen. They went around to the churches. And then they accumulated enough money over a period of, of years that they could pay for a full-time campus minister to the, to the college. It was a, a wonderful expression of the body of Christ coming together to reach this secular campus. And the ministry flourished. We were the largest group on campus. We were bigger than any sorority. We were bigger than any fraternity. And the only way that we could explain why is that 
because where sin abounds, grace superabounded all the more. And God made that campus fellowship have a tremendous impact on the student body and upon the community. There are numerous examples of people's lives being wonderfully transformed by this glorious grace of Jesus Christ. In the 17th century, there was a young boy who was born into a Christian family. His parents loved him very much. He learned the word of God from uh, his very early ages. But tragically, when he was six years old, both of his parents died, and he went to live with relatives who were mean, and they mistreated him. They abused him. They mocked him for his interest in the faith. In fact, they made his life so miserable that when he was a young boy, he ran away from home and he joined the Royal Navy, where unfortunately, as you would expect, life became even more out of control for the young man. Excuse me, he became known as a brawler. Um, He often took part in keel hauling of his shipmates, which was a form of punishment by dragging um, people underneath the keel. And finally, um, while he was still young, he, he fled the Royal Navy, and he became attached to a Portuguese slave trader, where you can imagine things only became much worse. It was there that he reached his lower point. There were times that the only way that he was able to eat was down on his hands and knees eating the crumbs that were on the floor. He escaped um, that particular slave trader, became attached to another slave trader where he was the first mate on the ship. But his life fell into great debauchery at that point. Um, He stole the ship's rum. He became so drunk that he fell overboard and he was about to drown. And the only opportunity to really to save him was that one of his shipmates harpooned him and drug him back on board. And you can imagine the rest of his life he bore this huge scar in his side from having been saved by being harpooned. You might think that things couldn't get much lower, but they did. For there was a time where there was a terrible storm off the coast of Scotland. And the ship was taking on water for days. And for days, all that they did was bail and pump water out of the ship. And it was during that process that he remembered Bible verses that his parents taught him when he was a young boy. And he was surprisingly, amazingly converted. So that he went on to write a hymn that we all love, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. That young boy, um, who became a converted as a man, was John Newton, who became one of the greatest preachers in 17th century England, even having preached for the queen, all because of the amazing grace of God. But there's another aspect of grace that scripture refers to here. And that is God's grace in the sense of his strength and his restoration. For instance, if you look at verse 16, we read, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Well, if you've received enough grace to be saved, then what sense is it that we continue to receive grace from God? 
Well, because once our sins are paid, there's no more payment required. We, we don't become saved from our sins genuinely uh, and then lose the grace of God. No, we maintain that new life in Christ. So this grace upon grace, this fullness of grace that is referred to, is the sense of God's strength that we need as believers to follow after him. John Newton is a, a tremendous example of this. He not only um, went to school and became a, a pastor, he became exceptionally involved and was one of the people, along with William Wilberforce, who ended the slave trade in, in Great Britain. And the way that he was able to do so was because of the strength and the enabling power that God had given him. When you think of the Christian life, there is a lot, there are many difficult things that God calls us to do. Where do we get the strength to do those things? How do we obtain the strength to love our enemies, to pray for people who persecute us? How do we obtain the faith that we live by giving a portion of our income from the first things that we receive, not knowing whether or not we'll have enough to, to pay the, the rest of our bills? How is it that we obtain the strength that we are able to put the needs and the interests of other people before our own, serving them with the gifts that God has given us? It is through God's grace. It is through his strength that he provides us and the power of his spirit and according to the wisdom of his word that we are able to live righteously. I mean, think about forgiveness. It's not easy at times to forgive people who have hurt us, who have hurt us terribly. Kent Hughes tells the story of how there was a, an article in Christianity Today in April of 2000 that described how for every Sunday of the prior nine years, the members of the Landisville, Pennsylvania Mennonite Church gathered to pray for one of the young men of their congregation and to contribute money to him on a monthly basis and to visit him uh, periodically throughout the month. Prayer, money, visits, you might think that that's a pretty typical way that a congregation might show its care for one of its members. What is very atypical of this particular instance is that nine years prior, after a meal with his relatives, 14-year-old Keith Weaver killed his parents, Claire and Anna. He killed his sister, Kimberly, and he tried to rape somebody else before he was caught and apprehended. And so you can only imagine the extreme hurt and the turmoil that his family, his church family, and his community was put in. They were rocked to their core. Um, we were living in Philadelphia at the time. Uh, Landisville, Pennsylvania is near Philadelphia. And this story was in the news cycle frequently, frequently. And finally, in March 1992, he received a sentence of 35 to 70 years in prison. What was not a part of the regular news cycle was the way in which this church, by the grace, the power, and the strength of God, responded to this situation. In the middle of their grief and their disillusionment, this congregation of believers got busy. They got together and they cleaned up the murder scene. They established a legal support committee to care for Keith's legal needs and other needs while he was in prison so that his surviving siblings would not have to be burdened with that. 
They studied grief. They studied forgiveness and victimization in Sunday school and in sermons. And calling upon the expertise of area chaplains and counselors, they learned what it meant in very practical ways to exercise the forgiveness of God in such an extraordinary circumstance. And the last I heard, they are continuing on in that journey through prayer, financial help, and visits to Keith while he is in prison. Their pastor at the time, Sam Thomas, said, Forgiveness is an act of God's grace. You don't forgive and forget. You forgive again and again and again. So we have seen that God's grace, the way in which we behold Christ's glory when we think about God's grace, is that we see Jesus as the perfect Redeemer, who shows, us our undes- who shows to us undeserved, unmerited favor and also provides for us the strength that we need to follow after him and to live in the restoration that he provides. But we also see that we behold Christ's glory as God's perfect revelation. We read in verse 14, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, in verse 17, excuse me, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, verse 17 isn't mentioning that there was no expression of of grace or truth in the Old Testament. Certainly there was. But predominantly, the law was given through Moses to show us our need of the Messiah that God was going to bring, who is Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of grace and truth. What is truth? Well, that was the question you might remember that Pilate asked Jesus when he was on trial in John chapter 18. What is truth? It's a question that is often asked by many people today. Truth is not just being able to verify certain facts as having occurred or information that is correct, although it is certainly that. When Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that is accurate. When Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, that is historically, verifiably accurate information. But beyond that, when Scripture talks about truth coming through Jesus, it is referencing that reality is to be found in Christ. He is the ultimate reality. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's not using the word truth there in a metaphorical sense, like he is the door, for instance. He is saying that he literally is truth. He is the means by which we obtain what is reality. What is real around us? The surprising thing today, well, the first part isn't surprising, but uh, in our culture, we we learn through surveys that 66% of people do not believe in absolute truth. In other words, they do not believe that there is a standard of objective truth that applies to everybody in every situation. In other words, they believe that Um, truth or reality is is relative based upon what circumstances you currently find yourself in. 
that your situation determines what is right and wrong. Whereas from scriptural perspective, God has spoken to everyone. His law applies to everyone equally, and it is on the basis of who he he is that we have an absolute truth that applies to everybody. The surprising part, the, the shocking part is that in these studies that 53% of people who identify themselves as being Bible-believing Christians will say that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Now imagine that among Christians that means that there are many who would say that the Bible is not the Word of God given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit without error or incapable of leading us into error. That there may be many who would identify themselves as Christian who would not agree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, fully God, fully man. That there would be many who would doubt, with, who even identify themselves as Bible-believing Christians, that Jesus not only was dead and buried, but he rose again from the dead physically and bodily. And there are many that would question whether or not Jesus Christ is going to return physically, bodily, at the end of ages, at the time appointed by the Father in his glory. That is a rather staggering thing to consider. One author remarks that it is pretty easy, however, to understand or to see where people find the gospel of Jesus Christ hard to believe. Because the realities in which it addresses supersedes our ability to understand as finite beings. But it's sad that so many make faith harder than what it needs to be, and they find difficulties where they do not exist. Let's take, for instance, the atonement. Jesus Christ dying on Good Friday to pay the penalty for our sin. Some people would say that they find that hard to believe, that there would be some form of substitution that would take place that would cover the sins of humanity for those that would trust in Christ. There are others that find difficulty with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They do not believe in the resuscitation of a dead corpse. There are other people who find the whole notion of the virgin birth to be extraordinary, to be beyond belief. In fact, in the last century, the majority of Protestant denominations moved away from the teaching of the virgin birth of Christ because they were embarrassed by it. And then there are many who say that miracles couldn't happen because the natural laws cannot be suspended and Jesus cannot supersede them and and perform miracles. Well, you see... The supreme mystery does not rest in the message of Good Friday when Jesus Christ bears the penalty for people's sins. The supreme mystery does not take place on Easter Sunday with the empty tomb and Jesus rising again from the dead. The real mystery that solves the other mysteries is that God became man on Christmas morning. J.I. Packer, the author of the book, Knowing God, continues in this discussion that he mentions, and he says, Once we grant that Jesus was divine, it becomes unreasonable to find difficulty in any of this. It is all of a piece and hangs together completely. The incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery. 
but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. Being born of a virgin? Highly unlikely, unless you're God. Being able to pay for the sins of humanity? Pretty sketchy, unless you're God. Rising again from the dead? That seems pretty far-fetched, does it not? Unless you're God. And Jesus is fully God, fully man together, so that if we understand the extraordinary mystery and blessing of Christmas that Jesus Christ took upon himself human flesh to represent us in our nature before God, to bear our sin, and to represent God in divine nature before us, then it's not far-fetched at all. We understand where it is coming from. But you see, truth isn't just something that excites us mentally or, or even stirs our emotions about these wonderful things. It results in vital changes to our lives. In the candle lighting this morning, the, the Johnsons read from Titus chapter 2, where we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is Christmas. That's the first appearing. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. This is the second appearing, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, <coughs> excuse me, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You see, if we embrace the message of Christmas, it should have the most profound effect upon who we are as people, where we no longer live according to the promises of this world in terms of what they hold out for deriving meaning or a sense of satisfaction and purpose in life. No, we find meaning and purpose by believing that Jesus Christ is the ultimate reality and trusting in him. We no longer follow the, the godless morals of our age, but rather we walk in the light that Christ has given us by the power of his Holy Spirit. So that when we think of Jesus Christ being the fullness of grace and truth and to us, we realize that for all of us, if we have not yet come to Christ in faith, that we can realize that our sins, no matter how great, no matter how awful they may be, that there is forgiveness through the full grace of Jesus Christ. We don't need to wait until we clean up our lives to come to him. We come to Christ broken in a recognition that our sin has displeased our Father and we have earned his wrath, but we cling solely to what he has provided for us in Jesus Christ as the basis of our forgiveness. And if we do, we receive grace upon grace. There's no one who is outside of the possibility of the grace of God if we come to him in faith. And for believers who are struggling to walk in that newness of life, whatever the struggle may be, his grace gives us the strength and the ability to follow after him as we rest in the power of the Spirit. And for those individuals who claim Jesus Christ as their own, we have the opportunity of experiencing the glorious transformation in our lives according to the truth of God. May that be true of us 
May we reflect the fullness of God's grace and truth, not only through this Christmas season, but through all of our lives. Let us pray.